For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. On Friday, November 15th, protests broke out in 30 cities across Iran after a surprise announcement by the government that it would ration gasoline and raise prices by 50 to 300 percent. The protests swiftly turned into anti-government demonstrations targeting the theocratic regime as a whole. And, as in previous protests, demonstrators utilized Twitter and other social media platforms to organize, to communicate with the outside world, and document the typically heavy-handed response by the regime. In the first 24 hours, hundreds of images and video clips showed security forces brutally attacking protesters. Amnesty International verified video footages as well as eyewitness testimony from people on the ground and information gathered by human rights activists outside of Iran reveal a harrowing pattern on awful killings by Iranian security forces. At least 106 protesters in 21 cities had been killed as of Wednesday. And Amnesty International believes that the real death toll may be much higher, some reports suggesting as many as 200 fatalities or even more. Adding to lethal attacks on the protests, within 24 hours, the government used other tools in their arsenal. The Iranian authorities shut down the Internet for five days to stop the flow of information to the outside world and to cut off communication among the Iranian people themselves. NetBlock, a non-governmental organization that monitors Internet accessibility around the world, has reported that, quote, the ongoing disruption is the most severe recorded in Iran since President Rouhani came to power and the most severe disconnection tracked by NetBlock in any country in terms of its technical complexity and breadth. Shahram Agamir spoke with Peyman Jafari, a historian at Princeton University, about the latest waves of anti-government protests in Iran. Well, the protest started in the evening of 14 uh, to 15 uh, November, when the government announced that it is increasing the uh, fuel prices, 50% for the first 60 liters, and anything above that would be 300%. So the fuel prices went up uh, three times higher. And that will, of course, have a huge impact on most Iranians who are dependent on private transport of their cars. Uh, So they started to gather in the main streets and squares of dozens of cities, blockading them with their cars and shouting slogans about give us back our fuels and and other solidarity oriented slogans. What is interesting at this point, though, is the geography of the protests. So if you look at the poverty map of Iran and lay that over the map where the most of the casualties fell uh, during the protests, you will see that this happened in the provinces and places where poverty is highest. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Tehran itself, in Tehran city, there was relative quiet climate. I'm emphasizing a relative because in the outskirts of Tehran, particularly to the south of it and to the east of it, where you have these small towns around small and medium sized factories, for instance, along the road to Save, that's a city to the southwest of Tehran. Lots of people have become unemployed in the last two years, also under the influence of the sanctions. Protests were 
uh, very intense in those places. They were also intense in Khuzestan, where the majority of the casualties fell because of the high poverty rate in uh, Khuzestan, but also because of the other dynamic, that is the treatment of ethnic minorities in Iran. So the Arab population in Khuzestan feeling marginalized and discriminated. The same dynamic was visible in the most western part of, of Iran, Kerman Shah which has actually the highest poverty rate of Iran, 40% under the poverty rate. There were uh, 30 casualties there. And again, that's, of course, a Kurdish province. The ethnic issue comes in there as well. And of course, it's a very impoverished region in general. Yes, absolutely. As I said, uh, Kerman Shah is one of the uh, most impoverished regions of Iran. But it also has, a, of course, tradition of civil disobedience, of, of protests, and so thousands of people taking to the streets. And also the government used to station lots of anti-riot police there and is quite violent in that province. And what's the latest in this protest? I'm a bit careful about saying anything definitive because we are waiting to get more news out of Iran. Uh, the Internet is being switched on as we speak. So more people are actually Iranians coming online on Twitter and other places and sharing their videos and news sources. However, uh, the protests have been most intense during the weekend. So on Saturday, Sunday and uh, Monday. But in the last few days, it seems to be more quiet. The fact that actually the government is opening the Internet again could be a sign of that as well, that, that they think they, that the protests are under, under control. Well, so we have to see which direction it is going to, to take. But obviously, after the huge crackdown of the protests and also the news that banks being burned uh, and so on, you see that there has been a return of the status quo, more or less. Paymon, there has been a wide spectrum of slogans chanted by the protesters in more than, if I'm not mistaken, 120 cities throughout Iran. Are we able to identify the slogans that are more or less common among the protesters at such diverse and geographically widespread locations? And do we know what protesters' key demands are? Again, that's a difficult issue because of the lack of information uh, and also some unreliable information. Uh, the only things we had were really the pictures and the videos taken of the protests and then sent online. Um, so the source that I have used to go through several hundred of these videos is Vahid Online, uh, which everybody can see on Telegram. So I went through them and actually counted the slogans. So the most prevalent slogans were really economic-centered, in the early days, at least. So they were slogans about the fuel prices. Where is our fuel? We want back our fuel. Slogans really demanding the government to pull back the policy. The second set of slogans was really related to mobilization. People were calling don't stand by, uh, join the protests, join us. They were really mobilizing others and calling on them to join them. The third set of slogans were the more political slogans. And those political slogans increased during the protests. Uh, slogans targeting the supreme leader, slogans calling for the resignation of President Rouhani. Those were most of them. And here and there, you could also hear callings for Reza Shah, etc., 
but those were really in the in the in the minority. You're referring to uh, the return of monarchy to Iran, which was basically deposed as a result of 1979 revolution in Iran. But you're saying that was not such a common chant. No, really not. As I said, and I invite everybody to go through those videos if they have the time and the patience. And those are upsetting videos, I must say, as well. Really, it's in, in few places where this was called. There is a broad range of, of, of slogans. As I said, most of them in the early days, particularly socioeconomic. In other places, you could hear they have abused Islam and uh, are instrumentalizing it. You see all these diverse and, of course, different political trends also come in to try to basically hijack these protests. I think there has been lots of propaganda from the monarchist groups actually claiming that they have planned and organized these protests, which is, I think, totally not true. These were very much spontaneous. On the other hand, I don't want to ignore that there is a section of population that call these kind of slogans as well. But usually they fall actually in two parts. One part of the people who call for the return of the monarchy are using it actually because this is the nemesis of the Islamic Republic. They know that if they want to hurt the Islamic Republic, they have to uh, call for the return of the, of the monarchy. Others really, of course, believe in this. But again, this was really in a minority among the slogans that I have counted. Let's talk a little more about these chants and slogans. When I look at these video clips, the protesters' rage and frustration is visible. Also, the slogans swiftly became more radical. And perhaps you can clarify, in terms of what you saw, what was the kind of timeline that you could identify? It looks like after the first day or two, they became more radical and politicized. True. They were no longer, as you mentioned, just economic demands. And if I'm not mistaken, the slogans revolving around the increase in gasoline prices, they became less frequent in the protests as days went by. Instead, the chance... That happened from, that happened from 17 November. So That's two days, two days, days into the protests. Yes. You see a huge increase in political slogans. And I'm always careful to make a very big distinction between economic and, and political slogans because they are often intertwined. Mm -hmm. I only use them as, as categories to emphasize what is the main motivation at the moment, what drives people to go to the street? We can actually make a thought experiment. Okay. So imagine that after two days, the government uh, would have announced that they are annulling the fuel increase. What do you think would have happened? What you're saying is they would retract this, yeah. this hike in prices. Okay. If they would retract a fuel hike price, I think at that moment, most of people would have gone home. This doesn't mean that their anger and frustration about political repression, about the really will to make a transition towards a more democratic Iran is not in place. But I think the main driving force for the protests was the fuel issue, at least as igniting so many people, inviting them to come onto the streets. In a broader sense, it would be a sort of a uprising, or if you like, it's a rage against economic injustice, poverty, basically. The fuel issue galvanized all the kind of anger that, that is there and the frustration. Yeah. But of course, people make a judgment about what is the price that they are going to pay for being on the street 
or stay away from the protests. That's what I mean. I mean, without the fuel price hike, it is impossible to see so many people coming there. But once they were on the street, you saw other issues coming into into play as well. And as, as I said, the demands and the slogans politicized rapidly when the demonstrations were confronted with huge repression coming from uh, the riot police, more people getting shot, injured, and so on. And people actually seeing on the street the nature of the repression on which the system relies. So this is logical that more political slogans became more pronounced. You're saying it quickly radicalized. Absolutely. Uh, yes, uh, this was uh, a, a reaction that you could expect. And you see that happen in many other protests, both historically and in other countries, that the actions from the, the state are uh, very important as well. And there has been much research on whether repression works as a mobilizing element or forces people to retreat to their homes. And this is very difficult to predict because sometimes more repression means that people become more angry. For instance, this is the logic we saw at play during the Iranian revolution in 1979. People actually going increasingly to the street when the repression increased. But at the moment, at least, we see that the level of repression that the state has unleashed is not mobilizing them in the short term. But I think the, the state is paying a huge price for this level of repression because it's alienating more Iranians and the distance between the state and the population is growing by the day. And this will come back as a boomerang in the future. Paimon, it's probably too early and the level of censorship and repression is such that that makes it even more difficult to determine which classes and social groups are participating in the current wave of protests in Iran. Are you able to shed some light on this crucial matter? As you said, it is really difficult. But from, again, the geography of the protests, we can see that they are really concentrated in the most impoverished regions. Again, the peripheries of Tehran, Kermanshah, Khuzestan, and so on. So those places that have suffered most economically in terms of unemployment, inequality, and poverty are the backbone of these protests. Furthermore, you saw that these are concentrated in places where there are not so much the state-owned companies, but the private companies, small and uh, mid-large uh, companies that have suffered most under the sanctions and under the economic mismanagement of the previous years. Men between 25 and, and, and 40, but that has also to do, of course, with the dynamics of the protest. The more violent they became, you saw uh, the diminishing of the participation of women. And this is a relative issue. And I'm emphasizing this because if you look to the protests of the previous years, two years ago, but particularly of 2009, women were at the forefront of the protests and were very prominent in them as well. They were present now too, particularly in the, in the beginning. But as the protests became more violent, you saw that the composition of the demonstrators became younger, and more male. Young men are essentially the driving force behind this protest. And it seems like it's ostensibly the urban poor. Yes, it's basically actually working class people going onto the street, but also impoverished middle classes. And this is the same dynamic as two years ago, but I would say that that process has actually widened. I think there was now a much broader participation 
from larger parts of the of the population. But there is also a group that didn't participate in, 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 in large numbers. And that is more, you know, the middle classes of Iran, particularly in Tehran. I have talked to people living in northern part of Tehran. They were basically saying not much is happening here. And this is the same class that actually stayed away from the protests in 2017. It involved something like, uh, I think, 80 cities, and it lasted for 10 days. At that time, it looked like the urban middle class, in spite of its grievances against the regime, for most part did not participate in those protests. Can we tell where the middle class is standing with respect to these protests? What is it that would prevent them from participating in, in street politics? There are a number of issues here. First of all, uh, the middle class actually has something to lose. We often think that people have nothing to lose anymore in Iran. I mean, for many Iranians, that is the case. But if you look to middle class Iranians, they have been used in the uh, previous decade to actually own a car, own a house or maybe two houses, rent it, sublet it and go on holidays, uh, be it in Turkey, Georgia, Armenistan or uh, Dubai. So they have something to lose and they fear that chaos might actually threaten their economic gains and position as well, even though they have been under huge pressure as well and they have to make cutbacks, not go on holidays, etc. But I do think that that plays definitely a role. The other issue is that there is a break on the expansion of the of the movement including the middle classes and other members of the Iranian population. Let's not forget Iran has 83 million inhabitants and future mobilization is depending on them as well. So I think the repressive power of the state is still a break on this expansion because for now we saw lots of violence, but we didn't see the revolutionary guards on the streets actually. So people are aware that the state is giving them the message that they will not retreat, they are ready to shoot people, and if the demonstrations continue, they are prepared to unleash more violence and force on them. The other element is, I think, fear for chaos that foreign powers might hijack the movement or make use of this to impose more sanctions on Iran or the the war threats or whatever, the, the fear that a rapid change might actually not lead to democratization, but to chaos. Whether that is a a realistic fear or not, I do think that that fear plays a part as well. And of course, uh, the regime is playing its hands well in terms of making sure that the fear is propagated. They are actually emphasizing. So if you look at the media strategy of the state, they are sending programs that focus on the burning of the banks. They are interviewing people. There are rioters on the streets. So your lives are in danger. The security of this of society is in danger. And yes, blaming the foreign powers and their, their mingling, etc. So yes, they are playing into these fears as well. The protesters, their narrative is that some of these actions, you know, attacking private property and even banks to some extent or private vehicles and so forth and so on, these are done by the regime's agents, security forces in plain clothes. I mean, this is this is a real possibility and, and, and no doubt in some places this has happened. But looking to the videos, you can also see that there is, you know, some some destruction going on by protesters, what seem as protesters, given the, the spontaneity and the large number of it. 
to be honest, this doesn't surprise me. This is the dynamic of this kind of protests that we have seen in Chile. But even if you think of the yellow fests in France, right. in, a, in a kind of liberal democracy, the protests were going on for months. There was huge police violence. And the dynamic is that these kind of protests are built on the, on the voiceless people. So rioting is basically giving voice to the voiceless. It doesn't surprise me that those who feel alienated from the system wake up to the announcement that the fuel prices have uh, gone up, that all the anger comes, comes up. It's an insult to the people the way, you know, you announce this overnight. It's almost like you don't exist. Of it's, course. And this is, again, why I said it is sometimes difficult to say this is economic or political, because this is, of course, this element you are pointing out is very political. Yeah. Because it basically showcases that the people are not taken seriously. This was not discussed. This was not announced before, not in parliament. They just come with it and surprise everybody. Tells you something about the lack of democracy. Power is hubris with these authoritarian regimes. This was clearly a gamble by the regime, the way they decided to crush these protests. Because instead of trying to wait it out and hoping that protests will gradually fizzle out, the Iranian regime's security forces have used live ammunition and other brutal measures to quash these protests so early in the game. What explains this response by the state at such early stages of the protests? I don't think that is a coincidence that was very much calculated. Yes. Do you think they expected such unrest? I do think they expected uh, definitely some, but I don't think they expected it would be uh, so intense and so widespread. Because if you see what kind of military forces they employed on the streets, the riot police was obviously ready for this but they hadn't counted that it would be so widespread uh, across the country. But if you take into account what the Supreme Leader said about the fact that politicians and the people shouldn't count on the sanctions going away anytime soon, that Iran had to rely on its domestic economy, and that we have to go through these hard times. That's one part of the story. And the other part of the story is indeed firing on people, sending out the message that we are prepared to crush any opposition and we are here for the long game. I think that's really the message that they wanted to give, to send out. My question is this, why not wait it out as they have done in the past? They usually wait and they contain protests because they know they lack defined leadership and organization. Are we entering a new phase that the regime has come to this conclusion that it's only through these brutal tactics that it can hang on to power? I think two elements contributed to this. One is a qualitative change in the, in the protests because there is a learning process going on in there as well because the repertoires of action are changing. So previously people would go onto the street uh, demonstrates, shout some slogans, and then nothing would happen. They would go home and it would fizzle out. But this time they were blockading the roads. They were blockading the highways. They were blockading the roads. They were blockading the squares. This is a different kind of a tactic that shows the learning process and goes much deeper and also gives the space and the time for the population to create their organizations and for leadership from inside Iran to emerge. So that makes it very, very dangerous, actually, for the, for the state not to respond. 
The other thing is really the external threat that has pushed the different factions of the political system together. This was symbolized in the way the decision about the fuel uh, price was taken. It was taken by the chair of the parliament, by President Rouhani and the head of the judiciary. So all sections, factions, institutions of the state are coming together because they are sensing that they are both domestically and externally under huge pressure. And I have uh, predicted this, particularly the impact of the sanctions and the war threats, that this would actually invite the state to militarize and give more power to the Revolutionary Guards. And that's happening at the moment. If you recall this upheaval in Iraq, uh, Qasem Soleimani, the Revolutionary Guard commander of Quds forces, was in Iraq and talking and discussing these matters with, with the Iraqi political leaders. And mm-hmm. one of the things that is being quoted that he said in those meetings was, we in Iran know how to deal with these protests. We know how to crush them. And if you look at both countries, they use the most brutal ways of, I mean, using live ammunition. Yeah, so the, the learning process I was talking about from below, basically, people on the streets learning from their own history and from each other in other countries. Of course, governments are learning from each other as well. In this case, it is not only Iran teaching the Iraqis and the, the Syrian regime how to deal with protesters, but they are also, also of course, learning from how those states have crushed their own uh, demonstrations and so on. But what in general we are seeing is a stalemate in this balance of power between authoritarian states and movements from below. This is not only limited to Iran. We have seen, of course, uh, even revolutionary movements, because I don't think we can speak about a revolutionary movement in Iran, but that was definitely the case in Egypt in Yemen and Bahrain and other countries, those were crushed as well through military intervention. By the way, those military interventions were supported by the West at that time. Uh, Let's not forget that. The same countries that are now supporting uh, the Iranian demonstrations very cynically. So I think there is this stalemate in the power struggle between the streets and the governments, and that's really frustrating. So it's a stasis. Definitely, stasis. There will be moments of breakthrough, as we see now, for instance, during these recent protests, because the last protest, big protests in Iran date back two years ago, that we saw dozens of cities going onto the streets. And in between, we have had labor protests, small strikes, Uh, small sit-ins, but now again, big protests. But the point is, these states are still powerful enough to push back, unfortunately. I just wanted to go back and talk about uh, use of brute force, live ammunition. Part of the calculation, the gamble on the part of the regime could have been, that's the way you keep the middle class in their homes. And again, that's something that governments and regimes use everywhere. Even in liberal democracies, if there are protests against austerity, you will see this on the media, politicians accusing rioters and calling everybody else to to stay at home. And on a much bigger level, this is what the, the Iranian politicians are doing at the moment. That's what the Iranian media are telling everybody. But to be honest, I think most Iranians can see through that. Nevertheless, most people who are reliant on, you know, TV stations and those kind of sources are scared as well. Even if they don't believe the government, they are scared about the 
consequences. And that fear is not delusional. Partly, it is there. Look at Iraq. Look at Syria. Look at the neighbors. I mean, this is not something that we can preclude. That is labor historian Peyman Jafari of Princeton University speaking with Shahram Agamir about the deadly crackdown on nationwide anti-government protests in Iran. They were sparked by steep hikes in fuel prices. So far, hundreds have been killed, thousands have been injured and arrested. We'll hear more after a short break. Iran witnessed major protests in the aftermath of the uh, 2009 elections. And less than two years ago, as we mentioned, there was another wave of protests. What are some of the similarities and differences between the current protests and the ones in 2009 and 2017? I think the biggest contrast is with 2009, which was really an explicitly political movement. And uh, in terms of its composition, the middle class was much more dominant. It was about where is our vote, so about the elections that were fraudulent in 2009. And of course, there was really this reliance on the strategy of silent protests, peaceful protests to kind of reform the state uh, from outside. I say from outside because that's the difference from the 1990s where most people thought, well, Let's just vote on the reformists and they will bring change. I think something changed in 2009 where people thought, no, we have to pressure them. We have to exert pressure in order to push them to create these changes. And then that movement was, of course, repressed. There was huge depression among many activists who many of them had to flee the country. And then two years ago, of course, we had these protests, which emerged both because of economic crisis that was, again, parallel to the sanctions policy and so on, but also, again, the huge mismanagement of the state. But also the factional politics played a role in there. You know, part of the conservatives really wanted to actually mobilize people temporarily to undermine Rouhani. But this time around, I think this is much more spontaneous and therefore not to be controlled by any of these factions. It is much more widespread. It includes working class people, but also those within the middle class that have uh, impoverished in the last few years. And that the action repertoires are changing, that they are prepared to uh, take over the streets, uh, take over control, particularly if you look to what happened in Shiraz. That was extreme. I mean, in some places, quarters of the city were under the control of the protests. So I think that's really a qualitative shift. There is a learning process there. But again, there are still huge weaknesses here because at one point, economic demands and political demands have to come together and have to be formulated in an overall strategy with demands, with social base, with organizations, with figures that symbolize and give a voice to these kind of movements. 
And unfortunately, we have to have some patience with this as well. Uh, this is going to take years before that, that is in place. Let's talk about that a little more, uh, what you just said. What do we know about the leadership of the protests and the methods through which grassroots activists mobilize? We know the challenges facing grassroots mobilization under an authoritarian regime. In a society like Iran, where opposition political parties are banned, and the media is ostensibly controlled by the regime and its loyalists, and where you have the activities of civil society groups severely hampered by the state. Just a couple of days ago, we should mention, six environmental activists were handed prison sentences for espionage, and they have already been spending two years in jail. So what is it like if you try to organize, as you said? Uh, Absolutely. The state has made this very difficult by undermining any possibility to kind of organize, create organizations on the underground. So what is happening is you get much more local organizations and an accumulation of experience among individual activists. So you refer to the set of protests that we have had in the in the last two decades, 2009 and then two years ago, etc. So you see people who have participated or know people who have participated in those protests, they are learning yes. uh, from their own experiences and they are accumulating those experiences. For instance, as I gave you the example of these road blockades, I don't think anybody came up with this prior to these protests. They probably learned it from other places too, as you mentioned, like in Lebanon, Sudan, or Iraq. Exactly. This is, this is, we we are going globally through this process of, you know, this is the spirit of our time. And and to be fair, we should say, labor protests in Iran have been using these tactics for more than two decades. They have been using it because they realize industrial action inside the factory or, or plant is not going to get them very far. So they would come and block the roads and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. That is what I mean by the accumulation of local leaderships. Because until now, we have had protests, for instance, among the Haftape workers. This uh, is the sugarcane factory. The sugarcane factory which... where there have been lots of strikes in the, in, the, in the last 10 years even. And previously, among the bus drivers in Tehran. And don't forget the truck drivers who organized a huge strike and who do have a a union. Uh, We have had teachers going on on strike. They do have a union. So it isn't the case that there is absolutely no organization. There are some organizations. People are going through these experiences. But most importantly, again, the individual activists are learning from each other, from the past and from other countries. And there are centers of these kind of organizations. For instance, the University of Tehran among the students. It's not a coincidence that uh, today the police was sent in and arrested 50 students. They should say they went in in ambulances. And take them away. So there is this uh, leadership growing from bottom up. And this is what makes me hopeful, knowing how difficult it is, because you're right. I mean, there is an authoritarian state that is doing everything it can to make it impossible for these people to make connections with each other. Let me give you one example. Sepita Golian, I mean, a student activist, a labor movement activist who had been arrested, who was in touch with the uh, sugarcane factory protests, was visible in these protests. Uh, she was arrested again. She's one, basically one of the leaders to... People were chanting her name on on the street. This is a a young woman, a labor activist. 
herself. But obviously, again, these kind of people do not get the media platforms to become a voice for uh, these kind of protests because they are independent voices. Independent voices that criticize, for instance, both the authoritarian state in Iran, but also are against the economic sanctions. If you look to Iran International or Voice of America, they will rather give platform to others who tell different things. Uh, there are some promising signs. These are the people who are loyalists to the regime, and they are extremely concerned about mobilization within the universities, what they call the leftists. They say Marxists. Yeah, they have written about this. Yes. They, they are organizing yes. projects to counter this growth. I mean, the, the left has been, of course, repressed enormously after the Iranian revolution, after the state consolidated its, its power, but it never went away. It has always had a presence among a minority of workers, among students and among intellectuals, writers and so on. So it has a base to grow absolutely again. You mean the and discourse? The discourse, absolutely. I mean, the organizations have to develop. But even in terms of organizations, if you look to some of the unions and the strikes, they are absolutely being stimulated by those leftist activists who are, are using the experiences of the past. And the other factor is that the longer these kind of protests continue and the state relies more and more on repression, you see actually the emergence of fissures within the supporters of the of the state itself. They saw videos of, of somebody who had fought in the war and he was saying, you know, they broke my car and I have given a big part of my life to defend this country. So many people do want to save the country, do want to, even if they are not as radical of, you know, uh, wanting to overthrow the system, they do want to have a decent government that is not corrupt, that listens to the people. Yes. And when they see this level of repression, they are turning their back on them. And yeah. this is what they are risking of us. But I think the biggest issue is actually how the hardcore of the activists can make bridges to the majority of the population. And there you have to have a realistic evaluation of the balance of forces. For instance, if you think, you know, we are at the dawn of a new revolution, you can actually be mistaken and expose yourself sure. to more repression because you think we can come out on the street and then get arrested. So you have to have a correct analysis of what is the balance of forces on the, on, on the ground. Because you talked about other forms of collective action and how the people have learned from past experiences and experiences of other countries, Iran has witnessed significant labor unrest that involved strikes, sit-ins, and other forms of industrial action in the past few years. But because independent labor unions are, are banned by the Iranian regime, it's extremely difficult to create a national labor movement. Given such limitation, is there any possibility of strikes in the key sectors of the economy in tandem with the current street politics? You obviously have done extensive work on Iranian workers and their role in 1978-79 revolutionary upheaval, which toppled the monarchy in Iran. They actually had played a decisive role, we should say. There is, first of all, really an objective difficulty for the labor movement in Iran, and that is the characteristic of the Iranian economy, in which we have a small number of large enterprises, factories and so on, which are often state-owned, and then a huge number of small workshops of, you know, employing two or three people, maybe 10 up to 50 sometimes. 
that makes a huge difficulty in terms of organizing these people in any kind of organization. And I think this is something that Iranian activists have often neglected, ignored, not invested time and energy in order to study how do you actually organize in this more informal sector and small factory uh, economy. That's one thing. The other thing is that the large industries at the end need to indeed uh, join any kind of industrial action if something big is going to happen. One way of thinking about this is we are seeing street protests. These have to evolve at the end, I think, into a general strike because that is a way of engaging more people in a way that they feel safer. They're not going to be shot dead on the streets. But that's a difficult thing to do because you need activists on the ground to organize these strikes. But you also need the participation of workers in Iran's big industries. As I said, those are state-owned industries. And which ones are they, if you can just uh, name a few? That's really the oil industry. That's the metal industry. That's the cement industry. It is the car industry. Uh, it's the mines. And not to forget, the modern working class in Iran also exists of office workers. Right, public sector, because public the state sec- is, the, is the largest employer in Iran. Absolutely. Iran. Then we are talking about teachers. We are talking about health workers. And these have to join these kind of strikes as well. And the problem is, uh, you see that in history and in other countries, they will do so. It's not that they're happy with, with everything that is happening, but they will do so if they think there is a viable movement. There is a movement that can go forward because they will be exposed to their employers, you know, immediately because they're working for the state. And in the state sector, any economic struggle turns into a political struggle immediately because your employer is the state. So the price you will pay is much higher. Therefore, I think the kind of movements that are being organized have to be very aware of this process of how you can actually build connections with the large industries and the public sector. And the second point is that it is not impossible to do this. As I said, there is a a union of of teachers and they have organized strikes. But then here really comes a debate about how you organize, what are your demands, what kind of strikes. This is a traditional kind of old discussion. Some people are quite impatient about this and are saying, look, there should be a political strike immediately or very radical demands. On the other hand, there are very conservative forces that don't want to take any action. I think that the challenge is to formulate those kind of demands and find those forms of actions that can mobilize as many people as possible. Uh, And I think the teachers union has actually done a relatively good job on this, but many of its leaders have been arrested. And they're in jail. They are in jail. But look, let's not kid ourselves. It's an authoritarian state. You will have this tension. But if you push it so far, that union becomes a political kind of organization that is calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. It will be outlawed immediately. So you will have to create large trade unions that can function under the current conditions, but which serve as universities for activism. People making connections, people teaching each other the recent techniques, and so on. I don't think that is something that Iranian labor activists and particularly leftist activists have developed yet. 
because I think the left can actually contribute a lot to this, given you know their sympathy with these kind of organizations. However, uh, sections of the left, and we were discussing this, are suffering from quite some ultra leftism in in this sense. Uh, they want any kind of trade union activism to develop into an insurrectionary movement immediately. And that won't happen. So you're thinking more in terms of a social movement model as opposed to an insurrectionary movement? Absolutely. What we need is social movement unionism. We need concrete social movements uh, of students, of women and the labor movement organizing how difficult it is. I mean, that's the only option. And then what needs to happen is Uh, linking these different movements. And here, the role of intermediators is very, very important because I was emphasizing the objective factors and obstacles, Mm -hmm. but those objective factors won't change anytime soon. So we also have to invest on what we can do subjectively. And the role of intermediators, people who can actually connect these different movements and who understand which kind of slogans you have to formulate to be sharp, but also mobilize as many people as you can. And by the way, this is why the government is so sensitive about these kind of intermediators and goes and arrests them. But we need to multiply these kind of mediators. There have to be thousands of them and who go through this experience and who organize among themselves and coordinate. Let's focus on this issue of uh, poverty in Iran. It's estimated that more than 40% of Iranians live in absolute poverty. And this is based on, I must say, there are no, there are no reliable this is, figures. Uh, this is a report given by Iranian Parliament Research yes, Center. Yes, actually, this is a report that they gave last year, anticipating sure, yeah. that by this year, actually, 40 to 50% of Iranians live in absolute poverty. And Their calculation is based on the amount of calories that you yes. need. So that's 2,100 calories intake. Anything below that would be in poverty. So 40% of the population cannot live on, on that level, basically. That's and, what it means. And it may be up to 50%, actually. Some regions, it is higher. This discrepancy to which I alluded before, there is this unevenness between you know the provinces and, and the places. So that has absolutely happened. Look, the figures on poverty are very difficult in Iran because, you know, given the research that is done, the inconsistencies. What we have seen in the last 40 years is that absolute poverty in terms of what the IMF and the World Bank are using, basically less than $2 a day, that has decreased. But in the last years, it is increasing again. The figures that you just provided, 40%, those are the more... I think, accurate levels because they look to the calories based on the uh, food basket of the Iranians, what they are consuming. This research center, it's an estate entity. It belongs to the Iranian yes. parliament, Majlis. Yeah, and it actually produces good research, I must say, because I always use it. And that's the paradox of Iran as well. Again, I mean, there are good people around who are investing time in doing research yeah. and so on. But yes, I mean, the picture is disturbing. And I must say, again, there are really two factors here, because partly we have seen huge corruption on the part of the government. We have people seeing seen people enriching themselves. We have seen the bunyats, the foundations that own lots of industries, land and financial institutions. And they have been siphoning lots of money in those institutions. They are not paying taxes. 
this creates all kind of inefficiency. They're not accountable to anybody except for the supreme leader, perhaps. They're not accountable to state institutions. They're not accountable to the public. You see definitely an accumulation of wealth on one side and accumulation of poverty on, on the other side. And, so, and then there is, of course, other entities such as the Revolutionary Guards. Yeah. yeah. But what is interesting here, by the way, is, look, this is partly, again, a process that we have seen in many other countries, which you could call neoliberalism, this really redistribution of wealth from the poor to the rich that has been happening in the last few decades in many, many countries. But in Iran, I think it, the picture is complicated. It is liberalism with Iranian characteristics. You have this fragmented state with these foundations in which there is also accumulation through dispossession, basically. Right. The state taking away land and commodities of, of others, of ordinary people. Confiscating uh, them, yes. Confiscating them and using them. And this, of course, again, creates lots of inefficiency, insecurity. So if you look to the housing sector in Iran, construction is enormous. Why? Because those who do have the money don't feel they are they have the security to invest it in industry. So they buy up land and they buy houses mm-hmm. and the house prices are going up and the poor basically cannot even afford buying houses anymore in, in places like, like Tehran. So there is this dimension definitely going on. This, it, this is partly related to what is happening globally and partly to the particularities of the Iranian economy. In the 1980s, you saw the emergence of this state class, this state bureaucracy, basically. Mm-hmm. And the economy was, you could conceptualize it as state capitalism, the state controlling lots of capital. Since the 1990s, you have this process of privatization, liberalization, and so on. It started at the end of Iran-Iraq war. That's exactly. when this program exactly. or this plan was when, put in place. When Rafsanjani became president, yes. he kind of stimulated that, and it has actually continued. What you see there is, again, a similar process like in, in Russia after the fall of the of, the, of yes. the Soviet Union. There was an attempt to actually privatize assets, but there is a problem there. When you privatize them, these companies have to then be able to kind of compete on the international market if you're going to open it up. The truth is, lots of these companies cannot function. That's on the international uh, market. So they still need the state very much to give them cheap loans, give them protection, introduce a labor law that protects them, you know, uh, all the kind of protection that they need. So those new nouveau riche, if you, you want, you know, the, the people, the new capitalists emerging in Iran, stayed very close to the state because they need the state. That's why you still have a private sector and you have a huge gray sector in between the private sector and the state sector. So you have a rich class that is in doubt. Should they go all the way into the private sector or should they stay close to the state? So we have hybridity. Uh, So we have a combination of different forms. And that's really what makes Iran so uh, complicated, the economy. It's an amphibious creature, if you like. And and it creates a new ruling class that is very similar to the Russian ruling class, yes. kind of a mafia trying to kind of make gains from their political connections. But let me be clear, this is not outside of capitalism. This is what capitalism no. is in the periphery. In, in the age of globalization, this is what capitalism is. Because, you know, if you think of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, a number of 
third world countries made the transition to industrial countries, if you think of South Korea, because they could be integrated into the world economy. Because those people at the top of the state could think, okay, well, we lose our political control, but I will gain something economically from it. I will become the head of this successful company. But in Russia and in Iran in the 2000s and now, they don't feel they, they can make that those kind of gains because the world economy as such is in crisis. World capitalism is in a huge crisis. If you think of about what happened after 2008, it is ongoing and the peripheral states are not being integrated into the global uh, economy. We should talk about what is important to us at this point. The outcome is popularization of the people and the masses, the subaltern groups and concentration of wealth in fewer hands. Obviously, they have been exacerbated by the issue of U.S. sanctions on Iran, but the system, the way it was moving... The system was failing. Again, the 1980s kind of statist economy wasn't the answer in the age of globalization, if we look broadly. And then they come with this privatization uh, solutions and so on. It has basically betrayed the, the classes that they made so many promises to. They said, we will lift you out of poverty. We will fight inequality. That hasn't happened. All the slogans of the Iranian revolution, I think, are still in place, but they haven't been realized. If you, again, look to the geography of where the uh, protests were taking place, these are the places that were built after the revolution, all these kind of small cities yes, yes. emerged there. And the anger there is the deepest because exactly in those places that should have gained from the revolution, those gains have been eroded. In the 1980s, there was the war, of course, you know, there was huge pressure, but uh, there was some wealth redistribution. And afterwards, people really feel that they have lost everything. And there is an accumulation of this anger going well, on. This trend accelerated under Ahmadinejad's presidency in 2005. Yeah. For instance, yeah. when you look at the so-called privatization of the industries that's owned by the state, the rate that they were captured by these foundations and these entities like Revolution Guards and so forth and so on, because they were not really true privatizations, it was something close to 90%. Yeah, under Ahmadinejad, we had the biggest proportion of privatization. That's true. And that's exactly what I meant. You saw at that moment, basically, managers in state companies, bureaucrats, and so on, ex-officials of the Revolutionary Guards, buying those kind of companies, as I formulated, make a sidestep from the bureaucracy into the private sector. Because that's how they think they can make actually gains, be in the private sector, but use their linkages with the state. When people, for instance, refer to the boniyats, I think it is a very good demand to actually say that the boniyats should be taxed. Well, not many people know this, but Iran's oil is not nationalized anymore. It's not state-owned. Revolutionary Guard or some of these uh, boniyats, they actually have a share in this oil exploration and everything else. And they are not state entities. Yeah, but that's what you always get with this kind of statist economies yes. that are not accountable to the people. There is no level of democracy. So, again, the demands of uh, democratization and liberty, political freedoms are absolutely intertwined with, with economic demands here. And this brings me really back to the labor movement, because I think the labor movement is in a privileged situation 
to bring these kind of demands together, political demands and economic demands. Going back to this protest, if the history is any guide, the regime digs in its heels, uses repression to quell the protest, and does not offer any concessions during the turmoil. Do we have any reason to think what has been Iranian regime's consistent policy may change this time? No. Unfortunately, the short answer is no. I think given the policymakers in Iran, they have the experience of participating themselves in the Iranian revolution. They have looked to the neighboring countries. They feel under huge threat from the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and so on. So they will choose for the iron fist, no concessions, go through, unite among themselves, and repress and try to survive. And exactly for this reason, I think that it is very important that any kind of oppositional movement has to think about strategies to split the top, create fissures within the ruling elite. Because when you look to the history of revolts and democratic transitions, there is almost no case in which these transitions happened without major splits at the top as well. So the movement from below has to be strong and has to be independent, but it has to also create splits at the top because otherwise, uh, if the repressive capacity of the state is not weakened, you can't win at the end of the day. So you also have to weaken the repressive capacity of the state, make sure that the military at, at one point chooses to, you know, not enforce repression. Those are all calculations because otherwise, as you rightly said, I think the short term strategy of the state will be more repression. As you said, you know, the survival of the Iranian regime would not be possible without the loyalties of its coercive forces and their willingness to use brute force to quell the protests. Is there a reason to think that the regime's ability to maintain its network of patronage and and the ability to pay these forces for their loyalty has been hampered by the U.S.-imposed sanctions. No, and that's really the paradox of, uh, of it, because we just talked about the nature of the Iranian economy. And if you, for instance, look at two things, the uh, black market, one of the characteristics of sanctions is that they increase the black market because it has to be bypassed. When that happens, those with privileges, those with links to the state actually are able to operate more effectively in the black market and acquire more wealth. The second thing is that the Revolutionary Guards, because it actually controls the Iranian borders, the Iranian ports, and has all of this infrastructure, also increases its economic position. Not only its economic position, but given the military threat and so on, it also uh, justifies its further militarization. I mean, their budget has gone up for the Revolutionary Guards their voice within the political system increases. So I think what has happened, and this is why I think the future of the democracy movement in Iran is actually so tied with the international tensions, is because the international tensions increase the coercive power of the state and unite it and undermine the pro-democracy movement. So this is very difficult for some people to understand because then they think, well, Uh, you are somehow supporting the Iranian regime if you're opposing the sanctions. 
the reality, if you look to the history of not only Iran, but other countries as well, you see every time that there has been a confrontation with the outside forces, the conservatives in Iran have become stronger, the military has become stronger, and the pro-democracy movement has become weaker. That's really a lesson that we should learn. Are there any signs of rifts within the ruling bloc in terms of how to respond to the protest? I mean, it seems like what you said is correct. They have unified behind this agenda of holding the line against the protesters. Below the surface, there is huge, I think, unhappiness with how it is going. There are tensions among themselves. You saw this emerging, actually, immediately after the protests erupted in Iran. A number of parliamentarians wrote a motion that they wanted to put to vote in parliament. And then came the declaration of the supreme leader, and then they withdrew it. So you see that there is a tension. There is tension still, I think, relevant among the you know, reformist uh, factions. And then within the reformists, the more radical voices and, and the more moderate voices within them. But the problem is, again... Uh, but we haven't heard them talk, except for a handful. No, that's what I mean. Because, look, we, we could have seen these fissures emerge more visibly if they wouldn't have the feeling that they have to... Follow the line, party line. And follow the line, exactly. And that's that's yeah. what, what is happening. And this is, of course, you know, if you listen to what the Supreme Leader said, yes. basically said, look, you can't do this. We are under threat and we have to keep our backs and promises and go on with the line. And so he could discipline them, basically. But that's, again, what I'm saying. If there would be more space, political space, I think you would see more of these voices emerging. The top leaders of the regime have described the protesters as hooligans, rioters, and a threat to national security. Some have said that the demonstrations and protest actions must have proper permits. How realistic is that, given the fact that many civil service groups are unable to obtain permits for Simple gatherings and events, for instance, something as benign as Union of Iranian Writers. I mean, they cannot even have their own gathering. That's really a scandalous claim on, on two accounts, because first of all, within the Iranian constitution, there is the right to gather and to assemble if you are not carrying weapons. So that, that is already even there within the limited rights formulated in Iranian law. Second of all, as you said, in practice, they have been arresting peaceful protesters. People who don't even protest. I mean, they're just gathering for yeah. like, I mean, yeah. there could be students, oh. there could be writers. Closing off blogs, websites, newspapers, they have doing this. So obviously, there is a pushback against this. People try to find their ways to organize through, you know, whatever ways they, they can. And there is, again, organization because... People always find creative ways of doing this. But no, Rouhani promised actually when the protest erupted two years ago, 2017, 2018, to create these spaces where people could gather and and protest to kind of routinize the protest. That hasn't happened. Well, that was Uh, the same rhetoric last time. They said, well, they can just obtain permits. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they won't do it. Also, because there is huge, of course, opposition from particularly, I think, the military elements and the, and the conservative elements. They haven't done this. But look, they have a choice. They either 
listen and provide the space and the opportunity for people to voice their disagreements, or at one point in the future, they will, real, will face a huge insurrection. Well, so far they have chosen to securitize any sort of a political demand or dissent. Look, their logic, their mindset at, at the moment is we have to survive Trump. That's what I think. They are calculating at the top. We have to make sure that we survive this set of sanctions and go through this difficulty with, with President Trump and wait a new condition in which then we can maybe make some concessions or whatever. But I don't think anything will happen until there is this huge international conflict going on. So let's talk about that. Unsurprisingly, the regime has blamed outside powers for instigating the current unrest in Iran. That sort of rhetoric is consistent with how it had reacted to previous protests in 1999, 2009, and 2017-2018. It's also consistent with the way the Iranian regime has tried to characterize anti-government protests in Iraq and Lebanon. Well, it's actually what it has always done. It thrives on uh, creating this international conflict and deflecting internal problems through, you know, blaming them on, on others. And it's almost funny. And you have seen it. Many Iranians make joke of it because everybody knows that these are genuine movements from inside Iran. Of course, there are foreign elements that are trying to kind of use them in their own advantage, but it doesn't mean that these movements have been created by foreign forces. Not in Lebanon, not in Iraq, and not in Iran. They are part of genuine social movements that are erupting. But to be honest, this is what, what is happening with, with many countries in the region. Whenever something happens in Saudi Arabia, they blame it on Iran. When it happens in Egypt, they blame it again on Iran or a different uh, source. Even on the Americans. And vice versa. Huh? And, and vice versa. They, do, they, they were blaming the uprising in Iraq on the uh, United Arab Emirates, the Americans and the uh, Saudis. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is unfortunately a kind of survival mode that they have developed. But it's not effective anymore. Maybe at one time it was effective uh, because people were thinking maybe there is a truth to it. And again, people, of course, realize that foreign powers want to gain something from this. When, you know, Trump sends out a tweet, he's not doing it because he really cares about the Iranians. He has his own agenda. But it doesn't mean that the demands of the Iranians are not legitimate. The best thing, actually, I blame the Iranian government even on this point, because if Iranians would have a genuine democracy, that would be actually the best way of opposing the sanctions and the foreign threats, for instance, because there would be a unified Iranian population that was feeling, yes, we are going through difficulties, but we have to go through these difficulties because of X, Y, and Z. That's absolutely not the case, unfortunately. Meanwhile, they'll go on and uh, there will be short trials, there'll be forced confessions, they'll bring people on television screens. You'd see these individuals who will say that, you know, we were paid by the foreign forces, by foreign agents and so forth and so on. That's very worrisome because we don't know the exact amount of people that were arrested, above 1,000, and I really uh, fear for their fate. What will happen to them in prison and what will happen to them in these show trials? Uh, will there be executions? This is, is serious. Poverty, unemployment, 
income inequality these are the objective conditions that are going to remain in Iran they are not going to get any better in the foreseeable future I should mention the official statistical center of Iran reported that uh, this was three years ago and I'm sure the, it's, the figure is even worse it reported that at least 14% of the population lived in tents, or that's one out of seven. They lived in tents or tent-like sheds. I also looked at some figures from five years ago, which indicated the percentage of people using informal dwellings in some large cities. They were 34% in Mashhad, 31% in Ahwaz, 26% in Iraq, and 34% in Kermanshah. I'm sure those percentages are higher now especially after the earthquake in Kermanshah. And mm -hmm. unsurprisingly, these are the cities that were witnessing protests over the last week or so. So given this poverty and economic inequality, given the absence of defined organization and clear leadership that we have been discussing, what is the outlook for such protests in Iran? What is needed for such protest movements to evolve as we discussed, into a social movement and a national bloc, not just local, that can ultimately dislodge the political structure in Iran? Or is it more likely that you cannot have these protest movements evolve into social movements, but they would rather morph into, again, an insurrectionary movement launching frontal attack on the state? which can go either way, given the might of the state. To be honest, it's a very difficult question because it is very difficult to predict given Iranian conditions. Uh, one moment to actually judge where things are going are maybe the parliamentary elections in, in, in February in terms of how high the participation will be. I think it will be low given what has just happened, but it is one could be one kind of uh, signal to watch that percentage. The other thing is that in order to be successful, yes, we need to have create these networks that can organize these demonstrations into general strikes, sustain them, and come up with an alternative leadership and program and so on. But to be honest, I think that is going to take a while, given exactly the problems you mentioned, like poverty, uh, inequality, and so on. Because one point is, People often think that the poorer a country is, the bigger the chance of, you know, insurrectionary movements. Mm -hmm. That's not true. You need breathing space for the for the population. So I hope actually that we will come in a better economic condition in, in the coming years. And given the anger that people have accumulated, the alienation with the government, that they will use actually that space to make demands, to organize, to strike indeed, because, you know, if you're unemployed, you can't strike, you're much more vulnerable. And that's, by the way, something you see in all countries. At the moment that there is an economic crisis, level of strikes actually goes down. And when things are going better, that's the moment when people take start to take action because their expectations are rising. So I think also in Iran, I don't think immediately after these protests, although they are very significant, we will see them evolve into an insurrectionary movement. I don't think that is the case. Uh, that's not the balance of forces. I think we will still see in the coming years uh, many battles, uh, small and large. And uh, it really depends whether in those battles a new discourse is created. Because even if you cannot create the networks and the organizations, 
it is important to create the new discourse. And I'm a bit worried about that exactly, because look, we need a discourse that criticizes the current state and says we need to go beyond this and create a democracy at the which there is social justice and equality. And we also have to value the independence of Iran uh, instead of wanting, for instance, to go back 40 years ago to the time of the Shah. I don't think the majority of Iranians uh, would, would want that. But unfortunately, there is the lack of this discourse. We now have either the discourse uh, propagated by the state through its media, or we have uh, the loud voice of monarchists and so on. I think there is a lack of this kind of third voice that can give a positive future reimagining a positive future of Iran, that is really lacking. And not looking back, but going forward, we have to transcend the Islamic Republic and our own past that, by the way, gave rise to the Islamic Republic. And that discourse needs to be created as well. Paymon Jafari is a labor historian at Princeton University, he spoke with Shahram Agamir.